Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss childhood bullying, how it is defined, and the impact it has on the victim and the student body as a whole. According to the Center for Disease Control, bullying is a form of youth violence and is an adverse childhood experience that can lead to trauma. The CDC defines bullying as any unwanted aggressive behavior or behaviors by another youth or group of youths who are not siblings or dating partners that involves an observed or perceived power imbalance and is repeated multiple times or is highly likely to be repeated. Bullying may inflict harm or distress on the targeted youth, including physical, psychological, social, or educational harm. Bullying can take several forms, including physical violence, such as hitting, kicking, and tripping, verbal aggression, including name-calling, teasing, and shaming, relational or social aggression, such as spreading rumors and isolating someone from the group, physical damage to the property of the victim, and cyberbullying, or aggression through technology such as texting or the use of social media platforms. Research consistently shows that bullying is common. According to StopBullying.gov, about one in five students aged 12 to 18 report being bullied on school campus, and more than one in six report being bullied electronically. Bullying rates are highest in middle school at 28% and decreased to 16% in high school. Some groups are particularly vulnerable to bullying. As many as 40% of students who identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual, and 33% of students unsure of their sexual orientation report being the victims of bullying in school or electronically. Girls are also more vulnerable than boys with 30% and 19% respectively experiencing bullying. If bullying is a common experience of growing up, why should we worry about it? According to the CDC, bullying negatively impacts all youth involved, including those who are bullied, those who bully others, and those who witness the bullying, known as bystanders. Researchers Hayes, Goldberg, Smith et al. write, The deleterious effects of bullying are well-established. Adolescents who are bullied miss more school, show signs of poorer school achievement, 
and report loneliness, poor health, and greater levels of anxiety and depression than their non-victimized peers. Today we have the great fortune of speaking with Dr. Susan Strauss, an expert, author, and international speaker on discrimination, harassment, and bullying. She investigates complaints of bullying and serves as an expert witness in lawsuits on bullying in the workplace or in school. She provides customized training on discrimination, harassment, bullying, communication, and respect. She is an accomplished author on the subject, and we are very lucky to have her here today. Welcome. We have Dr. Susan Strauss with us here today. I'm very grateful to have you with us. Uh, for my benefit and the benefit of our listeners, would you please say a few words about yourself? Sure. Well, thank you for having me, number one. I am, uh, oh, I've been fortunate to have had a lot of different opportunities in my career. First of all, I've got a nursing background and uh, I've got a degree in public health, and then I have a doctorate in organizational leadership. I work now as a consultant to organizations and to attorneys in the areas of discrimination, harassment, and bullying. So I also am an expert witness for lawsuits, so I testify during depositions and in the courts. I conduct investigations. I'm a published author. Um, and I do training on the topic and webinars on the topic. So that's it in a nutshell. Wonderful. Um, again, I feel very lucky to have you here today. Thank you. Now, your work on this topic I read in your bio um, began as early as 1987 when you did a study on sexual harassment in schools. I'm curious what drew you and has kept you so clearly interested in this topic of bullying and harassment in work, but for our purposes today in education. Sure, I was teaching at the time. That's another thing I've been fortunate to be able to do is to teach both in high school and in college and graduate students. And our students were complaining about being sexually harassed at work. These were all juniors and seniors in high school. So a colleague and I decided that we would this was early. Now, we just had hardly had any uh, Supreme Court rulings on it. So it, it was iffy as this could even occur to high school students, whether they were at work or in school. So we applied for a small grant uh, through the federal government and received it and put together a curriculum on sexual harassment because that was all that we were uh, aware of that was going on at the time. And with that, we trained the kids in it, and we were only talking about what they were experiencing at work because they were all working. But with that, we decided to survey them to find out the extent of the misconduct at work. And even as an afterthought, we said, well, let's just see if they're experiencing it at school. And lo and behold, they were experiencing sexual harassment at school much more frequently than they were in the workplace. So a couple of things happened as a result of that. One, um, I submitted the study to um, a journal. And two, we got a call from the Minnesota Department of Education. And they asked me if I'd be willing to write a 
book, if you will, that included the curriculum as well as background information that they could distribute to schools throughout the state of Minnesota. Then what was happening is I would go and do some training uh, to school districts. And soon teachers were saying, well, what about elementary students? And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> they said, we're seeing this in the elementary schools. Sure. I was shocked. So never having taught elementary students, there were four of us then who wrote the elementary curriculum. Two people had experience with that age group and two of us were subject matter experts. So we wrote a book um, that was distributed through the Minnesota Department of Ed. And we were getting phone calls from all over the country then for both of those books. That started it. Then I decided that there was such a need for it that I wanted to write a book through a publisher that could be sold. So one publisher I contacted said, well, we're not going to publish this unless you show that boys and girls are equally subjected to sexual harassment. And I said, but that's not the reality. So I didn't want to go with them, but I did find a publisher that was willing to uh, write the book or to publish the book rather. And that came out, boy, when did that came, come out? Maybe 1988 or 89, long time ago. Um, then I was invited to be on a couple of these talk shows, Sally, Jesse, Raphael, mm. and all of them. And I, I never watched them. I didn't know what they were all about. I was always working. And it's quite seductive. You know, they call and they say who they are. We will fly you to New York. You know, we'll pay for everything. Yaddy, yaddy. And uh, so my publisher said, well, be sure to bring the book because you've got to show that book on TV. Well, it was a horrendous experience. They, I won't even get into it, but I thought I'm never doing that again. Um, although I did do it one other time for the Donahue show because <laughs> he handled it very respectfully. But at any rate, one of the, uh, there was an attorney out West and he called me and said, we'd like you to be an expert witness for a lawsuit dealing with sexual harassment in the schools. I said, I don't know what an expert witness is. I never even thought about it. He told me and I said, oh, I said, I'm not an expert on this. He said, you're the only one that's written a book on it. And I said, well, I'll tell you, you're in deep doo-doo if you think just because I wrote a book that makes me an expert. And he said, well, in our mind, you are. And he said, would you be willing to do it? He said, we'll teach you how to do it. Well, this was an interesting case because, first of all, the U.S. Supreme Court had never ruled that Title IX, which deals with sex equity in the schools, even dealt with sexual harassment. And this was, interestingly, male to male, and it was a football team, and mm -hmm. what they did to their uh, quarterback, who was a junior. So that was the first case I worked on, and needless to say, we didn't win because there was no law to substantiate that this would, in fact, be a Title IX lawsuit. And then it's just grown since then. At this point, I've done 45 expert witness lawsuits, and some of them in the schools, excuse me, some in universities and colleges, and some in the workplace. 
so that's how it all began. That's a fascinating story. Uh, thank you. It's funny to me how our, we build our careers partly by an initial interest, but then almost happenstance after yes, that. Things snowball, right? right? Yes. So, you know, digging into this a little bit, in some camps, uh, I think the gravity of bullying is still being dismissed as just kids being kids. It was just a joke. They're playing pranks. It's a normative childhood experience. Um, with your expertise, what do you see as the impact of bullying on the victims? And why should we consider this a serious issue? Well, let me backtrack just a minute before I answer that question. When I was beginning this whole initiative, it was always on sexual harassment. Then the whole bullying phenomenon erupted. And pretty soon, people did not want to look at sexual harassment because that, in the meantime, had become a violation of Title IX. So the word bullying popped up, and sexual harassment vernacular and recognition of it went by the wayside. And everyone started calling any type of harassing behavior bullying. And that's what we have today. So much of the bullying that is going on, not all of it, but a good share of it, is really illegal harassment because mm -hmm. of a student's protected class. Whether it's sexual, whether it's disability, we see a lot against kids that are disabled, whether it's religion, particularly girls that wear the hijab, um, whether it is physical disabilities, whether it's race, color, um, sexual orientation, certainly. Oh, the sexual orientation and gender identity. So it's just easier for schools to call it bullying. Now, what happens with that is they don't use the right policy to respond. They have a bullying policy, and that's what they use rather than their harassment policy. And they're different because one's illegal and the other one is not. So the law requires that there are specific responses to harassment, but there is no federal law against bullying, whether mm -hmm. we're talking about it in the schools or if we're talking about it in the workplace. Like you mentioned, the CDC has their definition um, there are different states that have created some anti-bullying legislation, but for the most part, those are not actionable, which means you cannot sue if your student is being bullied and the school fails to stop it. So it's, it's a mixture of the two, bullying and harassment. And because schools do not respond generally the way they should, whether it is bullying or harassment of protected classes, then students are subject to the misconduct over and over and over again. And you not only have the direct target of the behavior, but you've also got all of the bystanders that are also negatively affected by the bully or the harasser who targets even one student, every other student that observes it, hears it, or knows about it is negatively affected 
according to the research, almost to the same degree as the target, her or himself. So the responses then for kids that are subjected to these forms of misconduct, there's a multitude. Um, everything, it, well, we usually divide it into four different categories. So how is it affecting them emotionally? How is it affecting them physically? How is it affecting them behaviorally? And how is it affecting them at school? So there's four different categories that should be addressed when this is occurring. So when we think about it physically, um, students may, it, when they are subjected to this, their immune system is compromised. So they're much more likely to get sick. Anything from um, increase in colds or even COVID or the stomach flu or headaches or just stomach aches. So they will get various physical complaints. The other one can be emotional. So what is this doing to them emotionally? Well, they, they can be angry. They can feel sadness. They can lose trust in adults. They lose trust in the school system. They don't trust some of their friends because they haven't stuck up for them. Or maybe their friends have actually joined in on the bullying so that the friends themselves are not targeted by the bully or the harasser. So trust then emotions, uh, feelings of sadness and anger are involved. Then if we look at it in terms of behavior, students that are targeted behaviorally will exhibit such things as increased irritability, or they will um, have a rage episode. They may be drinking alcohol more or using drugs. They may be isolating themselves more at home, either in their bedroom or just isolating themselves by not wanting to be with their friends, not wanting to go out and do social things. Uh, they might be acting out in the classroom, particularly if that's where it's occurring. Uh, some bullies are excellent in their manipulation of making it so that the bully's misconduct is more manipulative, subtle, and nuanced so that the target will respond more um, overtly and then the target gets in trouble with the teacher because the teacher didn't see the manipulative, nuanced type of bullying from the bully or from the harasser. And then finally, you've got how is this impacting them in school? Well, are they not wanting to go to school on any day of the week? Are, they, are their grades dropping? Um, is the quality of their work not what it's been before? Um, some of the lawsuits that I've worked in, you've got kids that have been straight-A students that are now flunking out or getting Ds. Um, so those are the four primary categories that are impacted when you've got a victim of bullying and harassment. It's, it's major. And then you've got kids that kill themselves. And right. these include elementary students. Right. 
Um, let, let's talk about that, um, that link between bullying or harassment. I, I very much heard your point that we're using in many cases the wrong word in saying bullying, um, that it is harassment and discrimination. But well, and the link bullying, between though, that. It's both of them. Bullying doesn't have to be discrimination and harassment. Um, but the link between that and suicide, the media certainly makes clear causal connections between the two. But it seems to me that that connection is perhaps more complex than that. And I'm just, I'd love to hear what you've seen in your work. Oh, I think it's very, very complex. Um, we had a school district here in Minnesota many, many years ago where there were a number of students within a year that committed suicide. In bringing in, the parents um, had done formal complaints. The school wasn't doing anything. These kids were all struggling with their sexual identity whether it was gender identity or sexual orientation. And it continued in the school. It was quite severe. And I can't remember the number of kids that killed themselves in that year, but I want to say it was at least three. Wow. Now, they attributed that to the misconduct that they were, were victims of in the school. Do we know what else was going on in their homes or... I mean, was there um, any kind of maladaptive behavior occurring in the home? Were they being abused at home? Was there alcoholism in the home? Uh, you know, we, we don't know. So there can certainly be other contributing factors on why a student, for example, does commit suicide other than the victimization in the school. But we don't always know what that is unless the student might leave a suicide note or the parents will say, I've complained to the school numerous times. My son or daughter has been talking about not wanting to be alive anymore because they can't take the way they're treated and the school doesn't do anything about it. We may have some direct evidence like that, but it's not necessarily so. So it is complex, and we don't always know, was it just the maladaptive behavior in the school, or were there other contributing factors as well? Um, fortunately, there, the number of suicides that occur compared to the degree of victimization of students is, I mean, you've got many fewer suicides compared to how many kids are actually victimized. So right. there's so many kids that are victimized by bullying or harassment that we don't, we don't know. Um, we can't always put a definite causation on it. it. It certainly would be a contributing factor. It may be a cause, but we don't know. What would make somebody a bully? What's the, the background of, of the bully themselves? Is it a generational pattern? Is it, because what I read is the bullies don't do well either at the end of the day, often. So what, what's, what's the dynamic that creates a bully? The bully can come from a number of different perspectives. Sometimes we always think that the bully is, comes from a bad home and they're, you know, the, the, the drinkers and so on, and they don't have many friends, they're the loner. And that is one type. But you know what? It's also the popular kids. Uh, 
It might be the captain of the football team or the gymnastics team where their idea of themselves, their ego is apparently so high that they like to flaunt it. Now, the argument about that is that maybe that ego isn't so high. And while they're a they're a success in school, maybe they're on the on different athletic teams or on a debate team, or they're the captain of this or the president of student council, that deep down they think they're inadequate. And one way to demonstrate that they're not inadequate to themselves is to take on this power perspective in dealing with their fellow students. And unless somebody intervenes, that's the way they will continue to be throughout throughout their life. And it might show up in the workplace, in how they treat their colleagues. It might show up in the way that they treat their significant others, how they treat their children. They may be more likely in the long term to get involved with crime and with chemical use because their self-esteem in reality is quite low. Um, They may not be as successful in the workplace and in their relationships, although then again, they might. So we don't always know. Um, I know a friend of mine was used to be a bully in school and he used to torment animals as well. And he was a big, a big boy and he's a big man now. Um, he has been very, very successful professionally. He's had a successful marriage. He's raised children. Is he still a bully? Well, a little bit he is, but somebody had to have intervened and it must have been at least somewhat successful. He doesn't hurt animals anymore? No, but he's (laughs) he's like my age now, so he wouldn't, but he did as a kid. And um, so, you know, it it all varies. Did he get an intervention? I, I don't know. And what kind of parenting did he get? I don't know. So the long-term consequences are there for both the bully and the victim. And then the bystanders are impacted too. And the bystanders are impacted because of special neurons in the brain called mirror neurons. And they're the same neurons in the brain that give us the ability to empathize. So if we see a dead animal on the road, for example, to go, oh, no, or to cry during E.T. or when Princess Diana died. Those are the same neurons that hook the bystander, and they then can be victimized by the bully or harasser and suffer the consequences almost to the same degree as the target. You know, I want to get into that. Um, At the Guidance Center, You know, our primary focus is, of course, treating the 3,500 kids that we treat every year. But we also have a secondary focus of trying to change the world they live in 
um, trying to make the community kinder and more empathic and more uh, trauma-informed. And we have partnerships with a number of school districts, including some of our biggest, LAUSD, Long Beach Unified School District, um, working with them, bringing a mental health voice onto campus, trying to create, we have a program called It's About Time. It's the trauma-informed movement in education. And it's specifically around trying to create more nurturing uh, public school campuses. So, you know, when I read about the negative impact of bullying on bystanders, it seems to me that's, of course, the, the opposite dynamic that, so like, is what you're saying then is that bullying create or can create this negative campus culture perhaps oh. that can impact the entire student body? Absolutely, but you know what? Here's the thing that, that has to be recognized with school districts. They have to think of themselves as an ecosystem. And it's not just the bullying and the harassment, but it's like, I'm gonna use sexual harassment as an example. What genders are teaching what gender is the principal do you have a mixed gender on your school board but then we need to expand that too what about kids of color do you have teachers of color as well and we know that that at least here in minnesota it is not good we have way too many white teachers and we're starting to see more women becoming superintendent of schools. But then where does the money go? How much money in a school district goes towards sports? And I mean, let's look at sports for a minute. You've got violent sports, such, and I know some people will not like hearing this, but football. And football is where we, football players and hockey players are those athletes that are more likely to harass and bully. But it, so what does the school do in terms of teaching kids, not only about harassment and bullying, but of course about respect and dignity and recognizing that differences should be applauded? Um, do they have a mission statement dealing specifically with their culture in their school? What can we do to create a kind, empathetic, trauma-free, and it'll never be trauma-free totally, but where you create a mission statement and you actually have measurable goals and objectives, unless that is part of the prevention strategy, nothing will change. Yes, they have to look at the whole ecosystem. They can't just delve into, let's stop bullying, let's stop harassment and keep going. It won't work. You've got to look at the broad umbrella of, of the culture. And school districts don't do that. Now, they're, they're not the only kind of uh, workplace that doesn't, but they don't. And it, it makes a huge difference. Are they, are they giving as much money to the debate team and the band that they do to the football team? What about the girls' soccer team? So it's all those sorts of things. Right. And, you know, in California, where, where we are, um, well-known as a very liberal state. Yes. Uh, children today gives, and has for many years now, they do an annual report card where they rate um, how, we, how children are faring in our state. 
and every, they uh, give California a D in school climate. We rank some of the lowest in the country in terms of number of teachers per student, nurses per student, counselors per student, and just over half of ninth graders report having a positive relationship with a single adult on campus, a single adult. Yes. So I do think that goes to what you're saying about culture and climate. And are we creating environments where uh, students and can feel nurtured or are we creating ones where they're sort of in, in isolation and not feeling supported or seen? And I agree with you. Minnesota does that same um, survey and we're not too red hot over here either. I think part of the problem is if you go back to how administrators and even teachers are educated, they don't learn about what is a healthy culture, how do we create that um, in a school district, how are we even treating our teachers, are our teachers being treated with respect, do we allow students to bully teachers? Do teachers bully students? I mean, it, it's so complex mm -hmm. and convoluted and you've got your overt behaviors and the overt pieces that are going on in a district, but you've also got those very subtle nuanced types of behaviors that are sometimes even hard to just put your finger on because they're so they're, they're vague. So I think that administrators and school board members and teachers don't know how to create this environment. Um, I was doing training at a school district. This is, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago and was doing it specifically on harassment of protected classes and that every single poster in their school dealt with bullying. Now that's that's great, it's an issue, it needs to be addressed. Nothing about harassment of any protected classes. So I sat down with the school board and with the principal of the high school and talked to them about this and that there needed to be a differentiation for one thing because of the law, Title IX and is, is illegal and they're not dealing with it well. I thought, okay, good, this school district might make a difference. Well, a year later, I was at a state conference and I spoke and the principal of that school introduced me. And would you believe it? Because <laughs> he introduced me and he said, yes, she came and taught us about bullying. I didn't. <laughs> and he said, as a result, we only had one complaint of bullying last year. Not good. If you are dealing with bullying, it should be just percolating up where students feel safe in coming forward. Getting, I just wanted to crawl under the podium because getting only one complaint tells me that that district is doing very poorly in dealing with bullying or harassment and that kids don't feel safe in coming Absolutely. forward. And Absolutely. they have to feel that safe safeness, safety. Because we know it's happening. So yes. if reports aren't being made, then it means they don't feel that they will be heard or supported. That's right. So I just, uh, I just about croaked. And I thought, oh, I've, a whole day of training. And I said, if I'm going to do this, the school board has to be, and I know it's hard because they have 
other things to do with their own careers. But I said, you've got to get as many school board members there as you can. And there were at least half of them there. But that was what they heard in my message. And I thought, how could that be? But it's easier to deal with bullying than with harassment. It's just easier. think that in today's world, we can talk about campus bullying without bringing up the tragedy and horror of school shootings. Although a link between the two is often talked about in the media, research into this link is inconsistent, and I read research with divergent conclusions. Researcher Sommer Frederick et al. write that a plethora of studies have appeared which argue that prior to their attack, the perpetrators of school shootings had experienced intense conflicts and problematic relations, e.g. bullying, with peers and teachers, and were on the periphery of the school's social life. This in turn resulted in the perpetrators' view of themselves as marginalized victims. In their own review of 67 school shooting cases, with reports that included detailed information on social dynamics, these researchers found that 88% of the shooters experienced social conflict in school, 30% were physically bullied, 54% experienced peer rejection, 30% experienced romantic rejection, and 43% had conflicts with teachers. They argue that in order to better understand the role of social dynamics in the developments leading up to the school shootings, it's necessary to understand the perpetrator's position within their social network and information on their views of themselves as victims. By contrast, Dr. Peter Langman, author of School Shooters, Understanding High School, College, and Adult Perpetrators, points out that while peer harassment is extraordinarily common, school shootings are extraordinarily rare. Acknowledging that two to three school shootings seems like a lot and is unacceptable, these numbers don't match the great number of students that statistics tell us have been bullied. Most victims of bullying do not commit school shootings, and in Dr. Langman's research, those who did were not necessarily victims of the most severe bullying. Also of note, he writes that the bullies themselves are very rarely targeted in school shootings. Susan, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the possible causal link between bullying and school shootings. I don't know if there's been any research that shows causation. Correlation, yes. Causation, um, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any research that supports that. I think anecdotally, when we hear about these shootings and we do a background investigation, if you will, on the shooters, often, but not always, we find that the shooter was different, quote unquote, than other kids, might have isolated themselves, may not have had very many friends, etc. But again, what was going on at home, what was going on in the community, 
I think there's a correlation, but I'm not a researcher in that area. So, and I've not read, I might be out of it on that, but I've not read anything regarding causation. I, I couldn't either. I, in doing my research for today, I found some contradictory findings, but certainly um, a correlation. But, you know, yeah. people are complex. To me, it, it seems are. in some ways like the question of suicide that, you know, a much larger number of children who are bullied or harassed do not end up completing or attempting suicide, but a subset does. And yes. perhaps the same way that we don't really know yet what causes that one child to then take their lives. We also don't know what causes that one bullied child to act out in this horrific way when others would not. So yes. what layers are there, right? That can cause that. Even genetics, you know, you wonder what that whole nature versus nurture uh, question. Um, but they might have grown up in the most loving home and yet something doesn't go right at home or at school or in the community and it sets them off. So what could we do as a community then? We see the risks, we see these negative outcomes, we see that there's a correlation perhaps with suicide, with school shootings. So what do we do as a community to ameliorate bullying and harassment? How do we create change? Well, I think that it's gonna start in the school for one thing and parents need to play a role in this parents need to educate themselves about the dynamics. Um, I get involved in these lawsuits and it includes bullying, even though it's not illegal, it usually is included in the harassment. And you hear about what these kids have gone home and told their parents about, and the parents either don't believe them or they minimize it, or they don't call the, dis the school, or if they do, the school says, yes, we'll take care of it, but they don't. And the parent doesn't have the persistence to make sure that the school does. But it's the school that has the responsibility legally for the harassment and not legally for the bullying, but they still need to do something. So when we think about what does a school district need to do, um, well, like I'm saying, I think it needs to be approached from an ecological perspective, but they don't do that. So if we look at very easy steps, number one, they must have a good um, code of conduct and a harassment policy. And they need to do good training of their teachers on this. When I work as an expert witness and I start looking at all the documents that I need to review, I will look to see if they've done any training. And you know what? They'll say, oh, yeah, we do it in the beginning of every school year. But all they do is take about five minutes and review the policy. That's not training. So it needs to be extensive training. Um, this kind of stuff needs to be built into performance management for teachers so that teachers do respond when they see the behavior in the classroom and they don't ignore it. You've got to have somebody in the school district that knows how to conduct investigations. By law, 
you have to have a Title IX coordinator to deal with harassment and discrimination. There is no similar requirement for bullying, but some districts will have the Title IX coordinator be in charge of the bullying investigations as well. But what I see is these investigators have never been trained in how to investigate. They don't know how to ask questions. They don't know how to determine credibility. They don't know how to draw conclusions. And so nothing changes. You've got to have it strongly led by senior leaders, the, starting with the superintendent, the principal, the assistant principal, and any other leaders. It's got to be something where you get the students actively involved. For example, you may have the middle school or high school students be trained in how to go in and teach elementary students. Now, granted, mm -hmm. elementary students are going to have a far different kind of training, not so much with bullying, but maybe with the harassment, but it needs to not be a lecture. You need to get the kids and the teachers when they're going through it, it needs to be active participation where there's experiential activities that are involved so that the kids don't have to just sit there and listen to somebody drone on and on about, you don't hit people, you don't call them names, but you have activities where the students come up with, this isn't okay and this is what we should do. And what do you do if you've complained and nobody is helping you? Who do you tell? I mean, it's those sorts of things. But if you have middle school and high school students actually engaged in doing some of the teaching of the younger kids, you know, younger kids look up to these middle school they kids do. and high school kids. It's probably going to mean more to them than you know, some teacher going in and doing it. So looking at all of those kinds of things is what a school district must do and not ignore it and not tell the students, well, you deal with it. Even if it's bullying and somebody's been called a name, this is an opportunity to teach children, if they are being called a name, assertiveness skills. How do you tell some another classmate, I don't like it when you talk to me that way, it makes me feel bad. So teaching them the tools, how do you actually verbalize to a classmate that you don't like it when they called you that name? Um, why don't you tell them? I mean, they're scared to death of retaliation. They're afraid that this is like a bystander, that they don't want to tell the bully to stop because they are, they're afraid they're going to be next. So all these experiential tools need to be taught to everybody from the kindergartner all the way up to the superintendent of schools. So it's all of this kind of thing. You know, I wrote a book several years ago called... Um, Sexual Harassment and Bullying, A Guide to Keeping Kids Safe and Holding Schools Accountable. And in that book, I have chapters on what school districts should be doing to address harassment and bullying. And they're not doing it. And so we continue to have the problem. I started in on this uh, basically back in 1988 is when my colleague and I wrote the first curriculum. Here it is, 2023, and nothing has changed. Nothing. I still get calls from school districts, and I just want to go, oh, my word. 
it just blows my mind that they 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 don't respond to stuff. So we really have to start with the school. Colleges and universities do a much better job about it than the K through 12. I think I'm going to go out and buy your book oh. uh, for our work with the school districts. What would you say to a parent whose child is being bullied? Okay, they need to listen to their child. They need to write down and document everything that the child is telling them so that the parent basically is saying, well, tell me exactly what happened. And to get the child to use the same words. And that's hard because the child, no matter their age, makes them have to relive it when they tell it. The, the parent needs to say, well, what happened next? And what happened next? And what happened next? Then um, the parent asks the child, was there anybody else there that saw this or heard this? Did you tell anybody about this? How does this make you feel? How has it influenced how you feel about school? You want to get to those four elements I mentioned. You know, how does it make you feel? How do you feel about school? Um, you want to notice if there's been any change in your child's behavior in terms of isolation. Um, are they more irritable at home? Are they acting out? Um, so you want to document all of these behavior changes that you may or may not be seeing. Has your child not wanted to go to school on Mondays? Um, have their grades been dropping? So you basically, as the parent, are looking for all of these things. And then I would, if the school, I'd encourage your child, if they feel safe in doing so, to complain on their own to the principal or the Title IX coordinator, depending upon how that is in their school district, and to bring documentation. Now, it depends on the age of the child, if they can bring that, if they can write enough to bring documentation. If they don't want to do it, then the parent must go with the child. And I, I hate to say this, but what I have found is that if both parents go, if there are two parents, they tend to listen more if the father is also in attendance and not just the mother. Because he's a man, he carries more, more power than the mom. They tend to go, oh, you know, she's one of those kind of moms. She's in here all the time. I mean, it just, they listen more when it's the dad. So that documentation is key. They need to listen. They need to not poo-poo it. And they need to go with the child to complain. And then at the end of that meeting with whoever it is they're complaining to, they need to say, I want to know what you're going to do about this. So, and when will you be doing it? So you've got to put the onus of responsibility back on whomever you're complaining to. Now, maybe that's only the teacher. Um, maybe. It depends on the severity of the bullying or the harassment. One thing with harassment, it makes a difference who you complain to because the only person that can legally do anything about it would have to be the principal or the Title IX coordinator or a school board member even. So there's a difference there between the complaint mechanism for harassment and bullying. But maybe it's just something that's going on in the classroom. The teacher may or may not be aware of it and you go in in support of your child. 
Is uh, what role do mental health providers have in this, if any? Well, are you talking about a school mental health provider or a mental health provider in the community? Well, I guess, for example, you know, our therapists were both. We're very community based, we're nonprofit, but we're on 80 some school campuses. Uh, providing mental health services there. So what role might we have in trying to address, identify, somehow, um, well, I guess address this? Well, I think that any mental health person, and, and same with nurses, by the way. I don't know if you have nurses there. Because I'm also a nurse, I tie into that as well. But they, they pay, play a pivotal role. I think that they need to be very well educated on bullying and harassment. What's the difference between the two? Um, what are some of the examples of behaviors of the two? And then the school district should, but they usually don't, um, bullet point what is the mental health and or the nurse's responsibility if they are made aware of these behaviors. Uh, because I've been involved in some lawsuits where they've known about it. And other than talking to the child, they do not report it up the line of responsibility. They need to know what their responsibilities are. And I know it becomes hard because of confidentiality. Um, so that's something I think that's worth discussing with all of your mental health people and nurses. What do you do to address the confidentiality? If it has to do with harassment, you still have to do something because it's an illegal behavior. And it gets, I know it gets hard with the confidentiality. Um, with bullying, I think you all as mental health professionals would have to make that determination. When do we break confidentiality? And I think that there are many times in the schools that I've dealt with where when a student comes in that the mental health uh, professional or the nurse might say, there are some times where I, where I may have to report this or maybe that goes into the policy or whatever the students get regarding mental health services and nursing services. So Dr. Strauss, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your incredible knowledge. This was a great conversation and I'm grateful. Thank you, Tricia, for having me. It's always a high for me to be able to teach about bullying and harassment because it's such a major issue in school. So thank you and good luck. It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by the Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Tricia Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. 
Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.